HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The Grape Nation is brought to you by Wine Access. Here's a great way to discover and drink the best wines expertly curated for you. Go to wineaccess.com slash grape nation for more info. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, You also find it in ripening foods like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Martha Stoneman. We'll talk to Martha about farming, winemaking, and her own winery. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Martha Stuman did not grow up around wine, but connected with the soil during a college trip to Italy studying agriculture. She was drawn to the vineyards and thus began a vigneron's view of winemaking. Martha received a master's at UC Davis and went on to apprentice with some of the best winemakers around the world, including Giusto Accapinti, Didier Barral, and Chris Brockway. She started her eponymous label a few years ago and now follows her own vision of making responsibly farmed, terroir-driven wines in the land that she holds so dear to her heart, California, and she's up in... Sebastopol Sonoma specifically. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Martha. Thanks for having me, Sam. All right, so we're talking to Martha remotely via Zencaster. And was I right, Martha? Are you up in uh, Sonoma right now? Yeah, I'm uh, at home in Sebastopol, which is also okay. where the winery is. Um, okay. Although my, my reach is kind of uh, all the way up into Mendocino County, uh, vineyards, vineyard right. speaking. Yeah, when, down to when we get into costume. the wines, we'll talk about you know where all your sites and everything are. But before we get to that, give the listeners a brief background, you know, on your journey in life and wine that got you, you know, currently to your own label, Martha Stuman Wines. And I did mention, you know, you didn't really come from a wine background, you know, it wasn't around, so you brought yourself into it. Tell me, you know, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, happy to, Sam. I think that's an important distinction. I I call myself a first-generation winemaker uh, because it is um, winemaking is such a thing that uh, the knowledge is generational. It takes so long to learn. You only get one shot per year to make wine, uh, one shot per year to pick 
grapes from a specific vineyard. So um, even though I didn't grow up with wine, um, I kind of used this beautiful international community as um, I would say my family. And some of the people you mentioned I worked for and apprenticed with, really, I do see in many ways as the generation that came before me. So even though it's not my parents or grandparents that were in wine, I really uh, learned a lot. You know, many times um, living with these winemakers or in a little um, place that they had. But I got into wine really uh, falling in love with just fermentation in general. I know a lot of people say they, they drank a wine and it was transcendental. But for me, seeing a large vat of grapes fermenting and the smells and the energy. I mean, the yeast just give off this this heat and these aromas and this transformation happening I thought was pretty um, incredible. And the first time I witnessed something like that was right after I graduated from undergrad. Um, and I was in Italy on a small farm there. So I had studied um, environmental studies and geography with an Italian minor, which was a really just Italian was something I had wanted to learn, um, knowing that my grandfather, um, my maternal grandfather was Italian and I never got to meet him, but uh, my mom told me many stories of him and I just, I loved how vivacious he sounded. He ran a restaurant in um, New Jersey and was just one of those hosts that was very gracious. And so that's funny. Yeah, it's something that, you know, made it, even though I never met him, um, that sort of sentiment made its way all the way out to the West Coast when my mom came out to California. And the stories lived on when she was raising, she and my father were raising me. And it's just, I don't know, I always had an attraction to it. So the environmental studies and interest in agriculture and seeing in many ways how a lot of the ways we do agriculture in modern um, in modern times is is broken when you're looking at environmental um, kind of the environmental impact and, and and also certain ways the political socioeconomic impact um, depending on what country you're looking at agriculture. So anyway, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but really felt like okay, I want to I want to see what traditional agricultural systems are like. At the time when I graduated from college, I think 11% of the population in Italy were farmers, where I think it was 2% in the U.S. So I thought, well, I love, I want to, I want to practice my Italian. Um, I really want to experience the culture and eat and drink and all the fun things. But also speaking from a, you know, learning perspective, I thought there are a lot better odds that I'm going to get this kind of more small, small scale farm traditional experience in a place where a larger percent of the population are farmers. So right. yeah, that that's what ticked it all off. They put me in the vineyard and the olive orchard, and then I got to be in the cantina, which is what they call a winery, um, and just was amazed by how the long, transformation. How long did you spend in Italy? I was there for five months, which was two months longer than my visa should have allowed, but things were a little more <laughs> laxed at the time. This was in 2006, so not incredibly long ago, but that was when I was 22. So it was really kind of the first, you know, my exploration after college and figuring out what I wanted to do. And So what were um, you plotting after that? I mean, was it like, let me go to, let me go home and try this out let me try a few other you know countries hook up with winemakers you know where did how did it take you to all those other great guys yeah so my undergrad was at UCLA and I thought maybe I would still I was very intrigued by wine and I was exploring and kind of doing research on um what uh, whether wine was a career, <laughs> whether winemaking right. was a career. I just didn't even know if that was really a viable option. But I went back to LA and started working for a solar panel installation company and sat behind <laughs> a desk and did a lot of rebate processing. And it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oof. I am getting back to, uh, I would love the to get land. back to Europe. Yeah, get back to the land. And so 
I just started um, doing the online search and applied for the, I actually applied for a wine job in California um, at Chalk Hill and, you know, was a little, I would say, um, generous with uh, myself when I was having my first interview about what my uh, seller knowledge was because <laughs> the small farm was like <laughs> the small right. farm we had like one one vat of wine but they're like yeah have you you know done punch downs and pump overs and I was like yeah yeah frantically scribbling writing down <laughs> to see what these things were <laughs> but right. um they hired me and and I loved it I worked there for two vintages and um yeah found some mentorship there with the the winemaker at the time uh Jordan Fiorentini and, um, Did your um, your love and being fed, you know, everything you wanted to your passions, was it fulfilled? I mean, were you on your way to staying in wine at that point? Yeah, I think um, really the the kind of linchpin was um, actually when I was at Chalk Hill my second year and um, speaking with Jordan Fiorentini, um, she had said that if I wanted to stay on, I um, she would hire me as her assistant winemaker, um, which was amazing considering the knowledge and background and experience I'd had at the time. Um, right. But really said, I, I'll, I'll teach you what you need to know. Um, it was an incredible offer. Um, I ended up still having kind of this travel bug and um, decided to go to Australia after that. Um, and then the Mosul and a few, you know, I did about eight years of apprenticeships. <laughs> so I guess I had more than just the travel bug. It was, you know, travel were monster you, or whatever. <laughs> were you bouncing? Like you'd go somewhere and spend three, four, six, eight months and go to the next place. I mean, that's what you consume those years with. Precisely. Yeah. So, so no mm-hmm. job or anything. The job was where you were, you know, what country and what winery you yeah, I like to think of that um, eight years as training for how to start a business on a shoestring because that's what Absolutely. I've been doing for for eight years was you know getting paid in getting paid in Germany, but then going to Italy and only getting room and board in exchange for my work and figuring out piecing together all these puzzle pieces really on how to sustain this and really viewing this as my education and if I came out you know, net zero or with a few, right. a few pennies in my pocket, then I was, then I was ahead of the game in my so, mind. So after about the eight years of bouncing around to some terrific places, countries, wine regions, um, do you come back? Where do you come back to and what do you do from there? And what year is that? about? Yeah. Um, I came back in 2014 and you know, the full, the full picture is there was a, from 2010 to twenty. Uh, 12, I actually did come back to California to go to UC Davis to get my master's in viticulture and enology. So I always really had this idea that, you know, the hands-on learning is indispensable and then the scientific education is indispensable. And so, um, but really came back in 2014 to kind of survey the landscape of California in my mind. I had really, in 2012, when I was in Sicily working at Coast for Giusto Occhipinti, who you um, mentioned earlier, he he asked me, you know, if you're this passionate about winemaking, you, you should go home and make wine because expressing your territory, there is nothing more fulfilling than expressing your territory. And, um, and that really that really resonated with me and stuck with me. And it was still took a little bit of time because I thought California is way too expensive, you know, great that my passions are going to be fulfilled if I go back to California in his mind. But I just kept thinking that there's no way financially I can do that. So for the next two years, I kind of uh, weighed my options, but Justo and I have remained friends and, you know, he'd, he would either call me up every few months or we'd talk and he would say, so when are you going to start making your own wine? And it was just the persistency. And he said, a money, you know what? Money's like anything else. You can find ways like any, anything else, knowledge, money. Uh, you can find ways to access these things if you are driven enough to. So, you know, you said earlier that you're a first generation winemaker and you didn't come from wine. 
but it's so clear, you know, you said how these people became your family. I mean, Juice, though, is like, you can't replace your real dad, but he's like your second dad in wine. I mean, yeah. he just seems like, you know, his heart, his persistence, you know, the way he connected with you is amazing. I mean, I think you are who you are today a lot because, you know, the influences that he had on you, which is, you know, a beautiful thing. So mm -hmm. he convinces you, you got to do it, Martha. So what happens? When, what, what do you do? Yeah. So um, I got together with three other um, uh, friends of mine who I had met at UC Davis who also were interested in potentially making wine. And um, I wasn't sure I wanted to own my own business, in all honesty. I knew I wanted to make wine in a specific right. way. And I wanted to make wine that had a little less um, makeup. You know, at the time, I think I was coming back to California when it still very much felt like there was uh, kind of a, more singular style to make wine. And if you didn't make wine that way, you wouldn't be popular. And what I'm talking about is, are pretty rich wines, um, pretty soft uh, wines and decently high alcohol wines and a good amount of oak. And that was persistent, not just in California, but that 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 style right. was so popular that it really spread throughout the world. Right. The and parkerization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Opulent, so high alcohol, you know, unctuous, all of that. Very yeah. popular in Napa and came into Sonoma, big in exactly. Europe, Bordeaux. Exactly. Yeah, which I mean is it's a hard, it's actually hard to make wines that way. Um, so not for like a lack. It's hard to make wines, uh, good wines, and you know when you're in it during in any philosophy. But um, right. but it wasn't what I like to drink at all, at the end of the day, and I didn't feel like it really. I felt like you know, when the pendulum swings too far one way, all wines start tasting homogenous. And if the point for me is to express California and its diversity and its diversity of soils and its diversity of climates and its diversity of people and taste. And, you know, we're uh, California, I feel like in many ways um, was uh, one of the, one of the people at the forefront in terms of food and, uh, natural food movement and, and a shift towards lighter lighter foods, but also a shift towards uh, bringing in international influences and putting them all together. And certainly there are plenty of other places in the world that were doing that. But I was thinking to myself, we're doing this in cuisine and we have this uh, idea that, you know, that, that we really need to put mother nature first. Why is this absolutely just not looked at in wine? And wine is an agricultural product. And so, you that know, I wasn't the, seeing, yeah. That, that was the blueprint for where you wanted to go, right? Exactly. And I also was curious what California terroir could really give us. What What are these microclimates and these soil types? Napa is very well studied. Sonoma now at this point is as well. But there's so many other places in California that are great for growing grapes and what do those things express when they are not either blended away into larger blends, those places, um, or heavily manipulated in the winery? So, so it, so in the late two thousand teens, what is mm -hmm. it, seventeen or whatever, you start your own winery to yep. fulfill all these, you know, needs and curiosities, right? Yeah, exactly. I okay. love making wine. That's like the number one passion for me. I've learned to like uh, running a business. I also find it incredibly creative. But I initially started my own business, not because I was really, really hungry to do so, um, but more because I just didn't see enough. The, the places that were making wines the way that I wanted to make wines were either too small to hire somebody um, or there just weren't that many of them. So yeah. Um, so that starts the winery. I had Jean Gonan on a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. and he came across to me, you know, as an old soul mm -hmm. and a true vigneron. And I, I sort of see the same type of winemaker in you, you know, Thank where you. You, you go back to, you know, what the land has to offer, 
you know, the varietals, you know, doing it in a way that requires patience, you know, that's all about him. So this is a good opportunity for you to tell me specifically, because you talked about it a little, you have an, a, a philosophy and an approach, you know, to making wine. Mm-hmm. I mean, you gave me a little seeds, but tie it together for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my philosophy, uh, I mean, number one is mother nature is first. I mean, wine is so much about pleasure and it shouldn't be at the expense of other people or at the expense of our planet, which Amen. is one is one step away from harming other people. So um, that needs to be thought about in the forefront. Um, and then all the de- the decisions should really just um, filter down from there. So if mother nature is first, um, you know, I have to look at the vineyard practices because that's the next step. Um, what are we growing? Uh, are we choosing the right plant material? Um, are we choosing sites that are less susceptible to disease? So this idea of mother nature first, but then also saying, okay, well, how can we work with mother nature in order to achieve our goals? So really observing what natural processes are, if, you know, start from a very reductive approach. So if humans were not, um, if humans were not involved and not shepherding the process, then what would happen? Well, you know, vines would would turn totally mildewy in most circumstances. Um, right. They would turn to vinegar on the vine. So, okay, what's the next step up from there? What are the places where you can grow grapes and mildew pressure isn't so high? Let's look at those. Maybe those are the places we want to focus on 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 um, growing grapes. And if there is still a little mildew pressure, then what are what's the way that we can deal with those without spraying? And if we do need to spray, what do we spray that's the softest chemistry? And so that kind of like, you know, adding on layers, knowing that um, as humans, we are part of the environment, we're going to have an effect. But I, you know, I, I, I call, I think of myself more as a conservationist than a preservationist if I have to choose um, environmental camps. Um, right. So we're not going to be perfect, but how can we use these incredibly complex systems that mother nature is already, you know, that's unraveling before our eyes and, and use those to our advantage. Um, and then, in so, the, and then in the, the winery is that a grape is like a little winemaking kit ready to be made. You don't need to add anything. It, and I can the, go more the, into that. All the farming and everything you discuss precedes that. I mean, by the time that yeah. you're saying the grape gets into the, winery a lot of the heavy lifting's been done and you continue the practices in your winemaking talk about that a little yeah absolutely so i mean if you have healthy grapes um you don't i don't know i think about it of almost like i think about bottled water or eventually if we'd ever need to start buying bottled air it's like we shouldn't need to do this water and air are abundant um and you know not yeah not free but you know and i think about that with with yeast and tannin and acidity and um a grape has all those things when it comes into the winery so you know there's a grape berry itself has tannin and color in the skins and a lot of flavor um and then it has water in the in the pulp, uh, acidity, um, you know, all the components that make great wine are in that grape. And then there's, you know, this what's called a bloom, a waxy bloom um, on the outside of the grape that has a lot of yeast um, and bacteria on it already. Um, and that can start kicking off fermentation. And then yeast is just in, in the air all over the place. So again, if you monitor your fermentations and really just kind of spend the time observing them. Um, you don't need to add anything. It's all, it's all already there. Uh, if the grape's unhealthy when it comes to the winery, meaning it has a lot of mildew or botrytis or some of these other um, diseases we talk about in grape farming, then, then yeah, you're, you're going to get some sour flavors. The fermentation's going to go askew. Or maybe you've grown your grapes uh, in the vineyard and focus more on yield. Um, 
than than vine longevity or flavor or some of these other things that I, I think right. about when I'm farming. And and then, yeah, you do need to maybe add some extra tannin or some extra color or extra acidity because the vineyard has been pushed, you know, beyond. When you it, say that extra tannin, extra acidity, are you mm-hmm. talking additives or the process? Like I'm, ta- for more- I'm talking additives. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so when you have to, you'll put those additives in or you try not to? No, I, I don't. don't. I'm also a believer that, uh, at the core of my philosophy is that. Yeah, that's my thought. Should be different year in and year out. And that diversity should be, you know, it's great to see vintage variation because the weather has been different. And so, you know, if you're farming your grapes, well, and you have a cooler year, it'll show up in the wine. The wine will be maybe a little more leaf or a little more, uh, the aromatics a little bit more expressive and the tannins right. a little less. But, so, you know, yeah. So when you're, so every vintage, you know, deals you a different circumstance. We'll get into mm-hmm. it in a few minutes. I mean, you're dealing with all different varietals and literally different regions. You mentioned Mendocino and Sonoma mm-hmm. and all that, and I'm sure. But as far as making wine, I mean, what about things like longer fermentations, you know, whole cluster practices? Um, does it vary by what wine you're making, what varietal, or do you have a philosophy with that? I love this question. (laughs) I love this question. Every wine is totally different. Um, I will try to make, you know, the same, if I'm working with the same parcel and the same grape, I will try to kind of make it in a similar fashion every year. Um, But there's no strict recipe. And that also kind of, um, I feel like there's a, again, a gray area between the vintage variation and then also, um, wanting the wine to, to taste, you know, quote unquote good, which is my opinion of what the wine right. tastes like. Not but, same, but good. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, one year I might do an extended maceration to, um, to amplify some sort of, uh, body or tannin. And another year I might not with that grape, but again, it's, it's thinking of what's that base material, what's the grape have, and then how am I kind of, uh, what are the techniques that I'm using to lift, to pull kind of the levers of what, right. what the grape already has, but no, no outside additions. I, I do add a, a very small amount of sulfur prior to bottling. Right. So I always right. like to say that. Um, you're, you're a practitioner. I, I want you to help me explain this to people. You're a practitioner of dry farming. You know, mm-hmm. obviously organics are important to you. You know, mm-hmm. permaculture has really helped you know, the land and everything. Tell me a little about mostly, like, what is dry farming? People hear that. I don't think they know what that means. Yeah, dry farming is something I'm very passionate about in California. Um, It means that you, a crop is only, um, it's not irrigated uh, by humans. The only water available to the crop is either rainfall via rainfall or um, whatever is available in the ground. So um, depending on how deep your roots are, um, what the plant can access. In California, um, you know, we don't get rain for many, many, many months straight. Usually the rains stop um, for us we might get rains as late as April, but oftentimes they might stop in March. Um, and then we, they don't pick up again usually until late December, sometimes January. So it's many, many months without rain. So rainfalls and and, and the rainfall in California corresponds when the vi- with when the vines are dormant. So rainfall is used to kind of recharge the soil, but it's not actually being used for active growth of shoots and grapes and all the things you think of when you think of grapevine growth. So really with dry farming, you have to have a very, very deep root structure um, and very drought tolerant vines. Does that point towards a little older vines or not necessarily? Uh, So most of the vines, this is a good question. And I, and I don't 
I don't fully have. Oh, I, I can explain a little bit, but I, I don't. Martha, fully have you an have answer. a master's, Martha. <laughs> I know. So <laughs> how most am I supposed <laughs> to explain this to everyone? <laughs> oh, most of the grapes in California that are dry farmed were planted around 1948. Some okay. earlier, some earlier than that, but you know, most of them were pulled out during pro- prohibition. So. 1948, post-World War II, we had this big um, flush of, of uh, grape vineyard plantings. And uh, at the time, there were no, there's not the plastic irrigation line technology or anything like that. So most of them were established as dry farm vineyards. Nowadays, right. no one wants to establish a dry farm vineyard because it's a lot more work to get the vineyard established. You don't have consistent yield year to year because... It varies, you know, when we have a wet year, I might get a crop that's, Right, you know, but, but you're not interested in that. You know, that's yeah. what's dealt to you. Other people, when they're starting a winery, like, I don't want to deal with that crap. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So with a dry farm vineyard, you can, I have a, a dry farm vineyard I lease that's about, uh, it's under 20 years old, which is, you know, young adult for vineyard speak. Right. Um, most people say that vines, uh, commercial vines, have a lifespan of 30 years. Um, so I think of 30 years as maturity, not as life's end for a grapevine. But yeah, right. so it, it is. you don't see as many dry-farmed young vine vineyards. It takes about, you know, five to seven years before you get fruit when you plant a dry farm vineyard versus three years when you plant a vineyard that's irrigated. So when you dry-farm, obviously the vines, you know, are struggling to get um, water. Mm-hmm. Um, what effect does that have on the berry? You know, a lot of times I think it's mm-hmm. usually smaller and more intense. And tell me if that's true. And the difference, you know, between that and a guy who does, I guess, decent farming, but he irrigates the crap out of it. I mean, what's the mm-hmm. difference between the fruit? Yeah, you'll definitely get a smaller berry. You'll have, um, you know, more more skin, a higher skin ratio in your fermentation. So you'll get uh, more tannin extraction. Usually that results in wines that are uh, can be aged longer, that will hold up longer in the aging process. Right. Um, but you do just get an amazing concentration of flavor. Um, I also have seen... Um, decently uh, high acidity, a uh, natural acidity in the grapes, uh, which is another thing that adds, obviously we know adds amazing right. uh, aging potential and then also great flavor. So um, yeah, it, I also, the dry farming, again, it's it's a bit of a, I think it, it definitely creates a, a better tasting grape, which is hugely important to me, but right. it also... Growing up in California, all I heard about when I was little was conserving water. And so... Well, there, there you go. Um, before we take a break, just tell me this. Um, and when we come back from the break, people will understand why, because I want to talk to you about all the different wines and where they're from and the varietals. But you work with... You don't own any vineyards. You work with different vineyards and farmers, Correct. Correct. So your philosophy, I don't want to overuse that word, but the way you approach it is you try to find people that have similar practices and values that you have to grapes and making wine, right? Definitely. Mm -hmm. Now, is that hard these days? Is it available? I mean, are there people out there that, you know, continue to be willing to give you these type of grapes? Is it competitive? Uh, it's definitely, um, when I started looking in 2014 for grapes, it was available, but I did also start looking in Mendocino County for this region, a reason right. because that region has just a higher percentage of organic uh, farmers than other counties in California. So kind of look where, 
<laughs> look where the practices are already in place rather than trying to convince someone to change. Can I just um, butt in? Can I butt yeah. in on that point? Is that yeah. because those guys have been generational, you know, family farmers and that's the right way to do it and they've been doing it versus some business guy in Napa who just wants to make a trophy wine? I mean, I know that's specific and a generalization, but is that part of it? I definitely think that's part of it. I think okay. there's two main reasons. One is is what you mentioned, that this is the way their families have always done it. I, I work with a lot of third and fourth generation grape growers who have never made their own wine, but their families have grown wine grapes for wineries in California for right. ages. And that's always how they've done it. And then I think the second reason is because there is... Uh, the conditions are, you know, easier for growing organic grapes up there. Right. And drier so, and... Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, drier, yeah. less, again, less fungal pressure, which is the main Achilles heel of grapes. So. It makes sense because a, a lot of, I think John Bonet called it, but the new California wine, you know, which is newer winemakers and the varietals, you know, are really getting wines out of Mendocino and Lodi and all these other areas with all these generational farmers, which is nice to hear. Um, Mm -hmm. Martha, we have to take a quick break. Um, When we come back, I want to talk to you specifically about Martha Steumann wines and a lot of the wines you're making and, you know, what you're doing with all those and a bunch of other things. My guest is Martha Steumann. Martha is the proprietor of her own winery, Martha Steumann. And if you stay tuned, you'll find out all these terrific wines that she makes. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. I want to talk to you about wine access. You know, I like to enlighten, inspire, and motivate you to try and drink more wine. Whether you're new to wine or a pro, wine access makes it easy for everyone to learn about and buy wines. Wine access will help you choose the right bottle, whether you're looking to spend a few bucks or splurge on that special wine. Let the pros at Wine Access sort through everything. It's all about the curation. These guys taste over 20,000 wines per year and only select the finest wines exceeding expectations and over-delivering on prices. They have the best relationships. Think Dan Petrosky, Andy Erickson, and they've even made wines with Julian Fayard and Myron Koshitsky. Discover your new favorite bottles with Wine Access. Ask about their Wine Club too. They have an exclusive offer available just for the Grape Nation listeners, 20% off your first order. Just go to the special URL, wineaccess.com slash Grape Nation, and the discount will be applied at checkout. That's wineaccess.com slash Grape Nation. Check them out now. back with my guest, Martha, Martha Steumann from her own winery. Um, I want to talk to you about your wines and um, where and how you make them. Um, Eric Asimov did a cool article about a year ago. It was a great story about you and your compatriots, um, where you make your wine, the people you share the experience with. Um, This sort of will frame you know, where and how the wine comes about. Um, you've been working with Pax Mali in, I guess, would be this communal winery. Is that <laughs> accurate? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely... So ex- uh, paint a picture for me. You know, we're going to talk about the grapes and the varietals, but tell me about the facility, you know, where once all the grapes, you, you know, tell me a little about that place. It's very yeah. cool. Yeah, it's a it's a very cool place. I've worked in a lot of different wineries and I more than I can count off the top of my head and I this is this is unique it's singular so um, we work in downtown Sebastopol 
Um, there was an old apple kind of processing area, kind of industrial area that has been revitalized. It's called the Barlow. And there's a lot of different makers there. There's a distillery next door, uh, restaurants, there's a, a, a cider maker, cheese maker, you know, it, it's a really cool area. Um, and um, PAX uh, started working out of that facility Oh, I'm not exactly sure, but I would say early 20 teens. Um, I started working out of there in, gosh, 2018 was my first vintage. So I've had three vintages there, but it's just, you know, PAX has this way of um, just really showing people that you know, again, kind of one of those people I think about him in similar in a similar frame to Justo Okipinti, who we were talking about earlier, but just kind of shows you that you can do it if you set your mind to it. And over the years, he's had various assistant winemakers who have then gone on to start their own labels and have often stayed in this shared space. So I don't know if Pax originally set out to make this a communal winemaking facility, but we have about, it's in this old, um, concrete building, beautiful kind of exposed rafters. It's a, it's a really great spot. Um, and I don't, again, I don't know if PAC's intent, this was in the intentionality, but he, we have about, let's see, six, six to, or seven. Yeah. Yeah. Principal winemakers there who all run their production out of it. And it's in California, it seems like the options to make wine were very binary. So you were either, you either owned an estate winery, which for me was prohibitively expensive. Um, or your second option is you work in a, out of what's called a custom crush facility where, um, the staff there, uh, does all of your work for you. You give them a work order, um, right. and then that they carry out all like, the winemaking. That doesn't sound like you. Yeah. So yeah. this for me was absolutely perfect. It's kind of this area in between where we share a space, we share equipment, um, we share a group of interns uh, during harvest when we need the extra hands. And so you just, you platoon in and out, you know, your stuff comes in, you're up, you got to clean up, get out. And then mm-hmm. Patrick or somebody will come in and he's got to get right. Yeah. Everybody's, yeah. Totally. It's very, and it's great. It's, and we have a group text thread. And if you have a question or someone says, hey, I've, I'm ordering extra glass for our bottling. Do you want any? You know, just all these things that, I mean, right. are great in terms of both business makes sense and then also are really fun. We have these big group lunches on this huge picnic table and Pax cooks most of the time. And he's an amazing yeah. cook. I, <laughs> I'm really happy about that part. <laughs> I follow uh, everybody and, you know, during harvest, I'll see how hard you guys are working, but I'll also see some communal, you know, lunches with some nice wine on the table sometimes. Um, it's a very cool thing, and I'm sure it has a lot to do with, you know, who you are and how you make the wines, having those people around in that environment, which is cool. Let's talk about the wines. So to my count, I mean, you can correct me, it looks like you're making a dozen wines or so, you know, give or take some, some year, you know, whatever. And they're not all your typical California grapes. I mean, you obviously have an affinity for Italian. I see some lean towards Rhone. You know, there's grapes like Negro, Maro, Nero de Vola, Vermentino, Carignan, Roussan, Marsan. You do a little Shannon and Trousseau. Um, but those, like I said, are not, you know, what we talked about earlier, the typical, what attracted you to those varietals? Was it, like you said earlier, you know, what was available or when you went to look, um, you, you know, how did this stable of wines come about? Yeah, when I started, I, I, I thought about it a little differently than I do today. But when I started, what uh, I was initially looking for is uh, kind of, again, this top-down approach. If Mother Nature has to be first, then what follows? So I was looking at organic vineyards, right. um, was interested in dry farming. So uh, a lot of what was available for me to me was Carignan. I found an old vine Columbard vineyard. Um, you know, there's a little bit of Valdegui, which was a 
grape that used to be called Napa Gamay and was popular in Napa and I think around the 50s. But um, so I think, you know, yeah, what was available and when I walked into a vineyard, was I floored at the vineyard itself? So was, you know, what, what did, what's, what did the vineyard itself look like? And then I cared a little bit less about what was planted there. Um, but I also knew that, you know, a lot of the grapes you mentioned, the Italian leaning, you know, some of the Rhone stuff, they just do well in these warmer climates. And I realized I was looking for grapes in places where, again, it was easier to farm organically. It's something, you know, Justo to bring him up again, he had mentioned to me, you know, you'd be stupid if you didn't farm organically in Sicily. You have this warm breeze, it's nice and dry, like, you know, what more could you want? This is a perfect condition right. to, grow, to grow grapes organically. And I, and, that, and that stuck with me too. And I started, so I started looking in these kind of warmer regions. Um, the bonus of that is that everyone, I think when I was starting to look in 2014, the Sonoma coast was kind of this hot spot and everyone was clamoring for it. And so, you know, coming from like a relatively working class upbringing Understanding that wine has some gatekeepers, it's kind of like, if I really, really, really want to be in the race, I'll find a way to do it. But oftentimes, like, when everyone's moving left, why don't I move right? Because it's what is affordable to me, too. And why don't I try to, you know, branch out and show people that these areas are amazing and these grapes can do amazing things. And so... So you, you know. were never, you were never predisposed to, you know, I want to make, you know, Chardonnay or Cab or whatever. You went in with an open mind looking to see, you know, what was dealt to you that made sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no disappointments. I mean, the, the grapes that you make and, you know, there's commonality from vintage to vintage. These are the grapes you enjoy making wine with now, right? Yeah. Oh, I love, I love the expression of these grapes. Obviously, you know, mother nature first taste is like a very, it's this, that's the sister to the, to the mother nature first idea. You got to have great, you know, a good tasting wine. So definitely enjoy these wines and, and these grapes too are, uh, you don't have to, you know, if you're not going to add anything in the winery, they have beautiful natural acidity. They have nice tannin structure. So and the yeah. alcohol is at a good level. Um, yeah. The acidity and the alcohol, they're easy to drink. What were the, when you got started, what were the first wines you were making? You know, I'm curious because we'll tell people where to go on the website. They'll see so many wines. But looking at that, you know, what were what were the things that you started making first? Yeah, the first two wines I made uh one was the Venturi Vineyard Carignan, which if I, I don't know, it's so hard to choose a favorite, but it's the one I probably reach for the most. I drink the most. Um, it's from this beautiful rocky parcel on in Mendocino County on, you know, inland Mendocino near Ukiah on former Russia, Russian riverbeds. So really heavy stony soils, uh, river stones and quartz. And yeah, I really love right. it. Um, and then the second wine um that i made in my first year was Nerodavla. so very right. uncommon in california uh has this beautiful this kind of balance between dark and light is what i think of it as so this the light is this bright acidity and then the darkness is kind of more this brooding f- wild forest fruit sort of characteristic now back to our discussion earlier was that something you were looking for maybe because of Justo or whatever, or is that something you stumbled on? Yeah, it's something I was looking for, and I it didn't was. know it. Ex- okay. it yeah, I didn't know Naradavla existed in California in 2014, and I uh, found three vineyards where it did. Two of the vineyards now I lease, and I'm solely the maker of, and then one vineyard I um, split the fruit with Chris Brockway, Brock Sellers. How many of all the wines you make and all the properties? How many, like you said, are you leasing and, you know, controlling? Yeah, about 25%. Um, okay. So it's two properties, um, about eight acres total, um, both 
both uh, had trained in this old method. Um, one I started leasing later and it was originally dry farmed, but has an irrigation line that had been added before I took it over. And then the other one, Benson Ranch, that I've been leasing since 2015 um, is fully dry farmed. So, you know, you said you're a first generation winemaker. A lot of these people in Mendocino, Contra Costa, they're multi-generational family wineries. Um, I'm gathering they're doing a very good job and that's why you're with them. Is it just something to lease and do everything your own because it's even more fulfilling to you? I it's not saw, like those guys are doing a bad job, right? I mean, no, exactly. Somebody, They're doing right. an amazing job. And I, and I, you know, by working with them, I have access to these vines that are 70 plus years old. That's incredible, incredible opportunity. I started leasing my own vineyard because I, I was interested in um, some experimentation, kind of pushing ah. what understanding where are we now with farming and what can we do? Um, and I think you can't necessarily do do that. Ask a farmer to do that. Right. Um, right. And and then also, I really saw it as, you know, being a a young woman, uh, certainly unheard of when I started, and asking people if I could purchase their grapes. Um, and a lot of these farmers are seventy plus year old men, very kind people, but they're not used to seeing me walk up and necessarily ask to purchase grapes. Um, Right. There's also something in California where there's a bit of a, there's kind of a love-hate relationship between uh, winemakers and grape growers. It's a very common thing that grapes are purchased in California, but ah. there is kind of this, um, too many times growers have been um, taken advantage of by right. lar- larger larger wineries. And so I really is- wanted to, I wanted to lease my own vineyard so I could, tell them that I too am a farmer and I can relate to their struggles. Like I, I understand right. the economics of it and I'm not asking did, for things. Did being a woman complicate that even further or um, um, not an I think, issue? Yeah, not an issue so much in, in California. You know, there right. were some times when I was uh, apprenticing where it definitely, you know, uh, in they Europe? tried to... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in, well. In, in it, France and Italy, I definitely had to, like, make it known that I could operate machinery and some of these stereotypes, so. Two different worlds, right? Europe and here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't know whether I would want to get into a discussion with you about that, and, you know, we're not. But, you know, being a woman in the business, I mean, you've proven yourself and all of that, but you've had the exposures in Europe, and, you know, thank God you said working with uh, wine growers, you know, being mm-hmm. a woman wasn't, you know, a huge deal um, or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, Valent- Valentine's Day is kind of around the corner. And I'm going to mm-hmm. make a guess here, but tell me otherwise, that your post-flirtation wines are among your most popular. Is that true? That is true. Yes. So you make a white. This is your blending opportunity. You make a white post-flirtation and a red post-flirtation, and they're blended wines. Um Tell me a little about the wines. And before we went on the air, you told me that your blending practices, you know, is going through some kind of change or something. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there any way to explain that? Yeah. I mean, so post-flirtation white and red, I saw as my opportunity to just, uh, I, I talk about patience, but I tend to be a perfectionist and I'm always trying to kind of push against that aspect of myself. And the post-sortation wines, um, they're some of my favorite wines. They're an extreme, I mean, the quality for the price, I, I'm so behind, but they just feel like I can be a little bit more relaxed in making them. And because I'm more relaxed, I actually think they 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 just shine. Um, but the white um, is a blend of co-fermented Marsan, Roussan, and Muscat Blanc. And then later I blend in French Columbard, Old Vine French Columbard. And then the red is a pretty classic combination of uh, Zinfandel and Carignan. Most of the right. Old Vine Zinfandel blends you get in California have some Carignan in it, but I just turned up the dial on the Carignan to give it kind of this crunchy, bright freshness and and a little bit of a lighter hand, certainly, um, with the Zinfandel fermentation too. Yeah, my, my, 
Blending practices changed a little bit this year because of the fires. I have a lot more light-bodied components to work with. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I make wines. I you know I'm guess I'm in this uh, group or ph- philosophical category, which would be called natural wines. But oftentimes those are people think natural wines are really light-bodied reds and. Um, kind of funkier wines. And I really love a lot of classic wines. I like wines that have tannin and structure. So, um, but this year just with fires, you know, um, we were pretty far away from them, but just to be super certain again, you know, bootstrapping the business, I don't have a huge financial safety net. So I've got to, I kind of think about the way the Italian, a lot of the Italian cooking I know of uses every scrap. (laughs) So that's um, the way to do it. Yeah, that I, I I definitely still wanted to use all of these grapes and um, we just didn't, I just didn't um, ferment them on the skins as long because that's where all the smoke um, compounds right. that's are That's how absorbed. you made the adjustment this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. so blending this year, it was kind of like, well, how do we get any structure, any ageability in the wines? And the whites, I think, are going to be more ageable than the reds. And that's just, again, it's fine. Um, I think, yeah, yeah. So the whites, yeah, the whites have texture from Lee's contact and they have really, you know, great acidity. Um, but the reds are, are fresh and fruity and, um, they're really delicious, but, um, I would say, you know, drink them in the next, for the 2020 reds, I'd say drink them in the next, you know, two to three years. (laughs) I don't Um, think, yeah, I don't think that happens much time anyway. Um, Martha, I could sit here and talk to you about all your wines for like another two hours, but I want to do something with you that is fun for you and it's my listeners, you know, love to hear what you're thinking. It's called the wine list. I'm going to ask you five questions. I ask every one of my guests the same five questions. Um, We have less than seven minutes left, so don't dwell on these. Buzz through them. Um... And I will post them on our social media, you know, through the next week. So the first question is, what is Martha drinking now? What's in your fridge? What are you curious about? What are you tasting? Has the season changes, you know, put you, put other wines in front of you? Besides mm-hmm. your own wines, what are you drinking? I've been on a champagne buying Bonanza, and I don't know why. Maybe just being pent up <laughs> this year, this past year. Uh, listen, I'm like... I'm in love with champagne, so I love that answer. But previous to now, you weren't buying as much? I mean, there's definitely an uptick in your champagne purchase? Oh, definitely, yeah. Okay, um, all right, so yeah. that's good answer. Give me, what else? Trying, drinking, curious about? Um, I have been drinking uh, some Chablis. I sound like a baller right now. I don't normally. <laughs> um, You're not, but... you don't sound like a baller. There's, there's... <laughs> Decent price grower champagne. There's value stuff. Chablis, yeah. you can get incredible stuff for you know yeah. good value. Petit Chablis. Um, yeah. Any particular makers you like, or you're all over? Uh, Chateau Beru has been a favorite. Beautiful. How do you beautiful spell Beru? B E R U. I think. Um, oh Zev- yeah, yeah, yeah. Zebrovin right. brings them in. Uh, incredible yep. Chablis. I believe they're no sulfur. It's it's yeah. Classic, Group. beautiful, beautiful wine. All right, good job on that. Moving nice and quick, I like that. Your favorite wine and food pairing. You like to cook, you like food, you like wine. Not something you eat every night, every week, every month, but what, what's your classic wine and food pairing? Oh, something I don't eat every night. I, my gut response, I want to say puttanesca. I make a lot of puttanesca, but that's kind of more of like a once a week sort of thing. No, no, that's okay. But yeah. but w- do you do different wines with it? Or when you make it, it's like this is the wine that goes with it. I, I do anything that's kind of medium bodied red. I do. I, I drink the Nerodavolo with it a lot. Um, but I also drink a lot of people's California Carignan is just a category in general that is just uh, it's, it's really exciting to me. And who else is making who else is making good Cali Carignan? Um, Brock Sellers, where I formerly worked. Who you, who makes, you have uh, right? Chris yeah, Brockway. makes an incredible, incredible Carignan. Who else? Uh, 
Las Haras makes uh, Carignan. They make a rosé version as well. You do stuff with them too, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. All Um, right, so those are good ones. One more? Yeah. Uh, Rosalind Reynolds. She's uh, relatively small. Her wine brand is called M-A, E-M-M-E, and she makes great Carignan. Give her a shout out. All right, do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar? It could be local. It could be through your travels. And I'm talking a place you walk in. They got the vibe. They got the good selection. They got people that know about it and, you know, are cool. Does any place ring a bell to those uh, descriptors mm-hmm. to you? Yeah. Verju in San Francisco is just okay. on That's a good point. One. Yeah. Anything Great. else? Uh, I, well, I love Ordinaire in Oakland. Um yeah. You know, my, my local Good. spots are those too. That's where I met my husband, so it has a special, so special that place is in my special. heart. All right, fourth question. Favorite all-time wine. I'm the most repetitive guy if you listen to my shows. I say the same thing. I used to structure the question like, Martha, what's your favorite all-time wine? What was that rarest, most expensive wine you ever tasted, you know, and wine where? The question has morphed more to what's that wine that had the greatest effect on you? You know, that was life-changing, that awoke you, that, you know, to this day. I mean, is there an important wine to you? Mm-hmm. Two wines I tasted in tandem uh, next to to one another. One was the Cherasuola de Victoria from Kos, which eventually uh-huh. led to me, you know, knocking on their door, a.k.a. emailing him and begging them to let okay. me work there. Okay, that, that, um, worked, that worked out pretty well. Yeah, which is great. And then side by side, I was tasting something from Frank Cornelessen, um, right. who's also a producer in Sicily. And for me, they not having the as much of a Burgundy benchmark because it really I was priced out of it by the time I came of drinking age. Those for me were like, oh, they're incredibly beautiful wines in the world that are accessible to me, and I want to know how I want to know everything. <laughs> that is how you answer that question. Okay, it wasn't, you know, a uh, 45 Aubryon or whatever. It was a wine that had a huge impact on you. Um, yeah. And I love that answer. All right, last question. It's a little tougher for winemakers because I have a lot of Psalms and importers mm-hmm. and retailers on too. But tell me, in your opinion, best wine around 15 to 20 bucks retail. Give me a red and a white. I always say my kids are in their 20s and you know they can't bring crappy cheap supermarket wines to a dinner or give it as a gift, but you know they can't afford to spend 40 a bottle. What's mm-hmm. where where are the values in red and white? You can go category, you can go maker, you know whatever. I always say Muscadet is a great value and it's cheap. Yep. You know, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. Uh, good question. I think um, there's some really beautiful uh, chocolates if you're talking about white. So from the Basque yep. region, incredible yep. flavor. And, you know, they're really lighthearted. Um, it's a great uh, answer. Yeah. And then a lot of, you know, if you're ever looking for Vermentino, I, I would be a little more uh, producer specific on this, do a little more dig- digging. But I think there's some really great Vermentinos out there. Um, I am from a Italy. big Vermentino fan. It's a great value great food wine give me a red or um let's see red wise i'm gonna go back to italy i'm gonna say i love lambrusco and there's actually some traditional lambrusco makers who i mean for sparkling so i'm I'm, more expensive i've turned everyone i know in into lambrusco and they love it what i need from you is give me one or two good makers Oh gosh, I oh I feel like if I'm you can to think Google of them this. now, I'll I'll email you and I'll post them. So Lambrusco, give me one other red. Um, I'm gonna go back to California Carignan. Great, great okay. value for the for the structure. All right, we got to wrap up, Martha. Let me do a quick wrap up. And we'll say goodbye to everybody. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at Sam at the Grape Nation. That's Sam at the Grape Nation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation uh, podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at the Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at S Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. I know it's confusing, but use the hashtag the Grape Nation on both. As I mentioned, we'll post Martha's wine list on our social media sites. Martha, if people want more information about your wines and even try to get them where should they go my website marthastuman.com 
S T O U M E N, and that's Martha, right? Mm-hmm. All right, Martha, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. We're spending the month of February talking to West Coast winemakers, and I didn't think it would be right to go in that direction without talking to you. So thank you for coming on. Um, thank you to our engineer, Matt, today, and thank you to everyone at Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening. <laughs>